Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, that's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to Chapter 15 in the book. And chapter 15 is about addictions, a condition that we often have to treat, uh, a condition that is called by uh, those in AA and 12-step programs, baffling, cunning, and powerful. And I was wondering, Dr. Smith, what do you have to say about addictions? Uh, so, so we're going to learn a whole lot about the non-conscious problem solver in, in this chapter. But first, let's just talk about what addictions are. In general, you know, people think maybe that addiction is, is doing too much of something. It's really not that. It's doing some behavior that is not in one's own best interest and continuing to do it even with that uh, evidence that is we're not doing ourselves any favor. So in other words, it's compulsive. It's compulsively doing something that's bad for us. And there are a lot of different things. The, the chemical addictions are kind of the original ones, but there are many other compulsive behaviors like anorexia or cutting or you name it, uh, compulsive behaviors that work against us. And they're baffling because, because what people see is you see a person who is doing of their own free will something that's not good for them. And why on earth would somebody do something self-destructive and go to great lengths to keep on doing it and to prevent anybody from stopping them? It just doesn't make any sense. So as I got involved with this field many years ago, I puzzled about that. And gradually, what came clear was that what's going on is that people do have free will, but their free will has been hijacked. And now we have a good chemical explanation of that, because somewhere in the, in the, in the late part of the last century, uh, scientists figured out that every substance that's addictive produces a squirt of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens in the brain. And so that led to studying that process and understanding better that that's essential to motivation. So what's going on is that the addictive substance gives a special chemical reward to the brain, and the brain then thinks that, that, hey, that must be a really, really important thing, and goes about making sure that the substance is obtained and consumed. So the essence of addiction is that the free will is still there, but it's, not, it's serving a different master. It's not serving one's own best interests. Which is very elucidating, right? That's really something that we can explain to our patients uh, when they present with yet another failed attempt at remaining sober, you know, hence a relapse. And then also perhaps to their families, because addiction is often considered to be a family disease as well. And, and it really is a disease in the sense that, that it's definitely an abnormality that causes a, a, lot of, a lot of harm. 
And so people, because free will is, is there and is so active, people imagine that this is a failure of willpower, but it's not. And, and people who try to use willpower to overcome the disease usually fail. But this is what leads me now to the really, really interesting part of this, of this chapter, which I, I want listeners to carry along with them, which is, okay, now we get an opportunity to watch, to see, to experience the operation of the non-conscious problem solver that is the source of most of the other problems that we've been talking about. Because you remember that 95% of the mind's activity that goes on outside of consciousness has been, I like to say it like this, architected by evolution to produce adaptive responses to circumstances. Well, our, our mind evolved to adapt, but evolved under circumstances that are very different from 21st century life in the, in, in the world. And so it's not a big surprise that given the complexity with which our, our brains are, or our minds are able to adapt, that those adaptations aren't always optimal. They're not always the best ones we could come up with. But in the addiction field, we see, especially with people who are in early recovery, we see them come up with bright ideas. Oh, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, says the person who has been in rehab six times before. Maybe I'm really, I'm really somebody who could control my drinking. I'm going to try to control it. I'm just going to have a couple of drinks every day. What? No, that's crazy. Where does that thought come from? It comes from the non-conscious problem solver who's working in the most effective and calculated ways possible to lead that human being back to the drink that he or she doesn't want to have. And this is really a distorted coping pattern. Exactly. Which you you call a secondary pathology. Well, that's right. I think very often clinicians sit with with a person who's had an addiction, who's got an addiction, and they and they think that all of that denial and and rationalization that they're seeing is something that existed before the addiction and caused the addiction but it it's not addiction means that your free will is trying to go against reason and go against your family and go against everybody who cares about you and you're trying to make sense of that and rationalize it and so it leads to a lot of pathology to have a need to go against uh, everybody else's advice. And that's one of the reasons why people with addictions have a particular degree of, of what psychologists call reactance, which means not wanting to let anybody tell you what to do. Right. And so that this is really a value system, isn't it? Where in a way, addicted people have a strong tendency to internalize the values of independence and to want to control their own destiny. Exactly. And, and that is why we'll talk about it a little bit later, but Miller and Rolnick uh, developed the technique called motivational interviewing. I, I think it's, it's not usually said or understood that motivational inter- interviewing is a special technique for people who are particularly resistant to being told what to do. And so you don't tell them what to do. You kind of, like Socrates, you lead them down the path until they figure it out for themselves. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. So it's a heuristic method that allows the 
therapist position herself in collaboration with the patient as opposed to an authority figure who's going to be wagging a finger. Exactly. We know that for addictions, that absolutely does not work. Now, value systems, this is another kind of tidbit that when we start to think of anorexia nervosa as an addictive problem, and you can argue whether, what it, whether that's addiction or not addiction, but it works the same in many ways because, once again, the free will of a person who's in the throes of anorexia nervosa, their free will is being utilized, has been hijacked by the goal of becoming as thin as possible to the point where it actually uh, could cause death. The tidbit is that we know now from previous chapters that when something leads to feelings of shame and disgust about oneself, that must have to do with values and the conscience. And sure enough, it helps to understand people with anorexia to realize that they've internalized a value that says eating is ugly and bad and terrible and uh, should never happen. And so when they do eat, even if the therapist is successful in kind of supporting and getting the person to eat, even when they don't want to, they feel horribly disgusting and, and bloated when they've had a normal meal. That's because they're going against their own value system. And, and just while we're at it, why develop that value system? This has been my experience that as you explore it deeper, what you find is that food and avoiding food has become kind of a proxy or a metaphor for a deeper need for love. And so avoiding food is trying to control one's need for what I call primal love. Well, and also in a very thin-minded, in, in a culture that values beauty and very thin, skinny beauty, the threat of being exiled from the possibility of connection, if you're fat, from intimate connection is, is really a threat to the survival. That's right. So it's a metaphor or a proxy, but it's heavily supported by our, our current culture. Then to the person suffering with a chemical addiction or really any kind of addiction, this unmet need for love, how can we incorporate it in the treatment? <laughs> no small questions here. <laughs> yeah. The place where I start is that I, I want to help my patient understand that the part of them that wants to eat, the part of them that wants to use the chemical, is really like that non-conscious problem solver is like a little kid inside. And what works best is when you begin to love that kid. And, and I'm talking a lot lately with, with people about learning when, when you were deprived in your early life, when your background is one that was pretty lacking in, in the kind of love and support that you needed. It's a very challenging thing to take on the job of loving yourself. And people start out kind of hating the part of them that gets them in trouble. They want to eliminate and kill off that part of themselves, but you can't do it. Little kids, if you scold them, that doesn't help them grow and change. What helps them grow is, be, is being supported and loved. And so I work with people to, on learning to love themselves. And it turns out that once 
you even accept that that's your job as an adult, then it's still not so easy. There still is a learning curve to figuring out just how to do that and how sometimes caring for other people and doing being of service is another way to love oneself because that's how we come upon abundance from the people around us when people want to give and take care of us. It's in part because we love them. Loving the little kid inside the addicted person can be very difficult for the family members because all of the dysfunctional behaviors, negative character traits that attend addiction are so difficult to cope with. And, and to make sense of that, that's right. So I kind of encapsulated what my speech for, for family members into what I call codependency and five easy lessons. Right. And, and the point is that we react to somebody in the family, somebody we care about who's, who's doing something self-destructive and persisting and, and doing it with, with vehemence. We, we go through four very natural reactions. And I think of it like this. The first reaction is denial. As we jump in with the other person and say, oh, yeah, this is just a normal, normal thing. It's, it's, he's young and likes to go to bars and, and stuff. And, and so we, we normalize it. We pretend that there's nothing unusual going on, even though the evidence is starting to um, mount up that there is. And, and the second reaction, which is also completely normal, is, is you try to control the other person's behavior. So wives will avoid having parties and inviting other people because husband gets drunk when they, when they do, or, or mark the bottles to show that, that the level of alcohol uh, keeps going down in the bottles in the, uh, in, the, in the shelf. So controlling the other person's behavior. Well, this is like cat and mouse. So when, when you look at cat and mouse cartoons, the mouse always wins. So when you try to control somebody else's behavior, you're doomed to failure. Controlling can also look like arguing, pleading, bribing, rewarding. Yeah, all of those, all of those attempts to control somebody else's behavior are bound to fail. Not only that, but these four reactions that are so natural all make the problem worse. The denial makes it worse. Trying to control makes it worse because the addicted person is the first one to give the spouse or the, or the loved one or the parents responsibility for the good behavior. Because if you're responsible for the good behavior, then I can take care of the bad behavior and I'm free to go. So the problem continues to get worse. And the third stage is anger or guilt. The person who's trying to control the other one begins to feel angry that their, that their efforts are not successful, or they feel guilty that maybe I haven't done a good enough job. Maybe I haven't been warm enough or loving enough or supportive enough. And of course, the addicted person says, yeah, that's right. You're not supportive enough. I need more, I need more care and, and support from other people. And I need you to stop harassing me. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it really, it seems to me that, you know, if I could just go back a little bit to the control mm -hmm. thing and, and you, you say it, you state it very clearly, which is that the addict feels harassed and then experiences an increased reliance on the addiction for comfort. Right. right. There's so much external pressure from the wife, for instance, that, well, you know, I need a drink. Yeah. She's, right. she's harassing me. Yes, that's right. And imagine it's a therapist 
we get into the same kind of thing. That's why the motivational interviewing, we, we cannot allow ourselves to get into a tug of war with an addicted person because the, the addiction will always win and the, and the tug of war becomes an excuse for, for using the substance. So the fourth reaction, which is also completely natural, is, okay, I've had it, I'm out of here, I'm done with you. And that rejection is yet another excuse to go on on a bender. It consolidates that unmet need for love that initially drives the addiction. Right. Uh, So the answer to these is the, the fifth reaction, the fifth response to somebody who's got an addiction is in trouble, is one that comes straight from Al Anon which is the 12-step program for family members, for people who have a relationship with somebody with an addiction. And in Al-Anon, they call it detach with love. And that is not natural. It's something that people need to learn. And it's, it's a little bit tricky. It means that you have to be willing to step back and let the addicted person do whatever they're going to do, even if that means... Uh, being destructive to themselves. It's saying, I can't control you. I'm sorry that you have this problem. There is help. There is hope. But you have to be ready to accept that. And I can see that there's not much I can do. So I'm just going to step back and, and watch what happens. But I really care. It feels terrible to see you destroying yourself. But that's all I can do. Now, there's an important note here. This is for situations where there is no leverage, where there is no way to influence the person with the addiction. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So this is for when you really don't have anything you can do. And shortly, we're going to talk about what things people can do when they're in, sometimes when they're in a relationship with an addicted person. So what I really appreciate uh, about the way you structure the chapters in the book, Dr. Smith, is that you, you go into the treatment principles and you begin with the very basic notion. And here with addiction, it's hitting rock bottom. Right. So, so rock bottom means that, that the addicted person gets to the point where there's something else that's more valuable to them than this incredibly powerful drive to continue the addiction. And if we're talking about basic evolutionary needs, what need is more basic than the substance when the brain has decided that that substance is synonymous with survival of the species? What could be more powerful than that? Well, here's what it is. It's our social instinct. And so most of the successful treatments for addiction pit our need for social connection against our need for the addictive substance or the addictive behavior. So we'll get to that a little bit more. But first, people with addictions will naturally try to find a way to have both and a way to keep their addiction and still be successful in in life and mitigate the problems caused by the addiction. So the first thing that they usually try to do is they'll try to to talk themselves into believing that they can do controlled use. Right. I'm going to switch to beer. Right. So that's where they're thinking, okay, things are bad. This, This is getting out of control. Let me try to get a handle on it. 
That's that's right. And so they really, in order to hit bottom, they kind of have to have to discover for themselves, since they're so resistant to being told about it, that that just doesn't work. So the, one of the first things I do when I evaluate somebody is I try to help them look at that question of, have you discovered yet that controlled use doesn't work for you? Which means they haven't really found rock bottom yet. That's right. That's right. Because that's one of the necessary things to, in order to really get to where your back's against the wall. And the second one is, I can do it myself. And, and what I tell them is, is, you know, your disease has the same IQ as you. And so it's 50-50. And so if you want to stack the cards against the disease, we're going to have to bring in some outside help, going to have to get some reinforcements but people with addictions very often believe that they can handle it themselves. And until they're disabused of that erroneous belief, then they're going to keep on failing. They're going to keep on saying, I can do this. I'm just going to make a really strong commitment and you'll, you'll see I'll never drink again. And in a few days, they've relapsed. Right. And so then here we're bumping up against that, that value of being independent and self-reliant. That's right. That's right. Yep. And so we have to get past that. And then we get to the point where, okay, I can't do it myself. Uh, I can't do controlled drinking. It's all or nothing. I'm talking about alcohol, but other substances work pretty much the same way. And so, okay, I'm going to have to accept some kind of help. Well, remember when about detach with love is for when you don't have any, anything you can do. Now let's talk about what you can do. Mm, And the key word here is what I call leverage. In mental health in general, uh, you know, mental health people are generally often kind of liberal and they really believe in personal responsibility and things like that. And it's commonly said that you can't get better from, uh, from an emotional problem unless you're really motivated to change. Well, what about the addicted person who's not motivated to change? Where where do we go with that? It turns out that at least at the beginning, it's perfectly okay for the motivation to come from outside, but it needs to be in a certain format. In other words, external motivation is if you continue to do this, which is okay with me because I can't control what you do, but there are going to be some consequences. Sometimes it might be losing your job. It might be that your spouse has finally decided that I'm, I'm going to walk away if, if this doesn't change. And that's what a controlled intervention is about. Uh, intervention is kind of a, an orchestrated way of sending the message to the person with an addiction that you have a choice. You, you're going to have to choose between your addiction and your family because we've come to the point where we recognize that we can't help you and that if we stay around and continue to be abused by you, we're not doing ourselves any favor and we're not doing you any favor. So we're going to have to step out at this point if you choose not to avail yourself of help. So then if, if the addicted person, along with all, all other humans, are really comfort-seeking creatures, the prospect of living without the family and the meaningful connections and, and, you know, or, the, or the prospect of some major loss overrides the comfort that the substance provides. Exactly. And, and the major loss we're talking about is a very specific one. It's loss of those important human connections. 
Mm-hmm. And there, again, we're pitting the addiction against that biological instinct that we need to be connected. We need to have other people that are important to us in our life and not to be rejected by them. Now, I also want to make a note in here. If you think about it, how does it feel when somebody you're tightly connected with is always angry at you and nagging and complaining? Awful. It feels awful, but it actually represents a tight connection. Right. And in that way, the spouse who's nagging may think that she's uh, that she or he is pushing the other one away. But the truth is, this is actually a form of enabling because it is feeding the need for connection at the same time as allowing the person with the addiction to go on using their substance. So that's why detach with love is so important. If it's detached with anger, then you're, then you're supplying that sense of connection and you're not using the most important leverage that we have. Right. So then really, I mean, the treatment principles for the person with, with addiction must include the family members also. It sure does help, uh, at least for the family members to acknowledge what they can and can't do. And for that reason, I have a very interesting and neat definition of codependency. You've heard of codependency, which is kind of the reaction that family members have. Well, my definition of codependency is wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. All codependency, all codependent behaviors, all those family behaviors that work in the wrong direction are based on wishful thinking, on believing that if I control his drinking, then then he'll get better. Or if I yell at him every time he does the bad thing, then, then he'll get better. Or if I reject him, then he's certainly going to get the message. I say he because it often is, but you know, women represent an increasingly large proportion of people with, with addictions. And at least for alcohol, very often with, in, in the old kind of family constellation where the woman was at home, drinking would escalate to a dangerous level without anybody knowing it because it took place quietly in, in the home. And uh, there's a tradition, kind of traditional emphasis on men, but, but it's, uh, this is a disease that doesn't discriminate on any basis. So if we could then, since we're talking about the family members, it, it seems that if that, that primal, meaningful, loving connection is so essential to the addicted person, what could potentially cause relapse is the family member's anger, resentment, unresolved anger um, that with which the addicted person, a newly sober person, will confront when coming home, which then could drive uh, that, the addicted person back to a relapse. Uh, definitely, that's why why every rehab has a family component, and those are those are very important because it's very understandable when the addicted family member is starting to get better. Then those who have suffered so much for years want to come back and 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 pile on and and share how terribly they've been impacted by this thing. And meanwhile, the newly recovering person whose recovery is very, very shaky is really going to have a hard time coping with all of that. 
And there's a common dynamic where the recovering person feels like, well, I've changed. I'm a different person now. And why don't you believe in me? Why don't you support me? Because I'm not the same. And meanwhile, the spouse is really only halfway believing for good reasons and is not ready to trust and probably shouldn't. And so we have a mismatch. And again, there's this the same kind of thing where the, the addicted person is craving for that connection craving to feel secure about the connection, and you can't really let them feel that secure. So that's where therapists have a role in kind of helping each one to understand that their reactions are very natural. What I say to people in early recovery is, your recovery is like a lighthouse. It shines out in every direction and everybody can see it. So you just need to concentrate on doing the right things in your recovery and everybody else will become a believer in less time than you imagine. Because people in early recovery all, all often want to convince everybody that it's okay now. You know, convince everybody that there's no longer a problem. Right. I know that, you know, with my patients, they, when they are newly sober and released from rehab or discharged from rehab, they face uh, very real consequences uh, of their addiction, second mortgages, job losses, you know, loss of income, um, a family member who's been maimed in a car accident when the patient was driving, for instance. And so it's not just a question of here, I have my own internal strength to remain sober, but there's continuously confronted with the horrible consequences of their addiction. Very, very true. This is why I, I really am a strong supporter of the 12-step programs because a person who's in that situation really needs to have an outside source of people who are non-judgmental, who've been through a lot of that kind of thing themselves and who understand how hard it is to to deal with a family that's still reeling from the consequences of your behavior. There has been a spate of articles against the 12-step programs, and also the the 12-steps are thought of by those who don't really understand them as cultish. The spiritual component uh, turns them off from, from it. And so in a way, they deprive themselves of what I consider to be the gold standard of sobriety, um, from alcohol or substances. And some people will rely on anti-craving medications and other forms of recovery. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, uh, so if we think that the only biological force really that's strong enough to counteract addiction is, is the need for social connection, then the 12-step programs make sense. And because that's a source of, at the same time, an, an unshakable connection, but a connection that's only there if you're committed to recovery. Because uh, if somebody's not committed to recovery, then the other people in the 12-step programs will say, hey, you know, do whatever you want. It's, it's, it's not my problem. What they say is, is your misery is gladly refunded. Uh, <laughs> You know, so there's that detached with love is built into the 12-step the programs, and I think they're extremely helpful. Usually, when people have an objection about the religious part of it, it's really, I think, the, the quote, the disease talking. It's that non-conscious problem solver who's trying to find yet another reason to avoid the things that are going to lead to abstinence. And it's sad. What I say to people about the religious stuff is, look... Any higher power is okay with me as long as it's not you. 
Right. And, you know, I would like to add to this also that mm. people who do not believe in God and, and who object to the use of God and, you know, the evocation of God uh, during meetings could think of God as an acronym mm. or um, the great outdoors uh, as a higher power, that there is clearly something that is much more powerful than the self when you mm-hmm. look at sunsets and sunrises and storms and weather mm-hmm. patterns and whatnot. Or group of drunks, mm-hmm. that the group of drunks in the room actually have um, a, an amount of wisdom that far exceeds any individual's. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also another really good one that, that I appreciate, which is gratitude over drama. Uh-huh. You could actually be grateful for being alive and for having the opportunity to become sober or whatever reason for gratitude that you may come up with as opposed to creating more drama in your life. Uh, those, are, those are all excellent. And I think, I think of them as, in a way, it's very, very hard to, to love yourself to be the captain of your own ship, responsible for making sure that good things happen to you. And it sure does help to, to realize that there are uh, forces outside of ourselves that, that are strong enough to be of real, real support and help. And so however we might conceive of it, having a higher power is really an important part of, of recovery. So I think most of the objections to 12-step programs emanate from the non-conscious problem solver uh, trying to, to keep away from anything healthy. And that's really too bad because, I mean, it's quite amazing that this entirely self-motivated, non-governed self-help uh, movement has been able to avoid the enormous pitfalls of people who naturally want to tell other people what to do and fix everybody else but not themselves. And, and somehow you get them in a room with, uh, with the traditions and the rules of the 12-step programs. And most of the time, amazingly good things happen. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that the 12-step program originated with two men I think in the late 30s, who came from different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. And it started with two men. And now, everywhere in the world, no matter where you go, you will find an AA meeting Mm -hmm. without any promotion. And it is entirely self-directed. That says a lot about the efficacy of that program. Yep. Uh, just a, a couple of notes about the, about the medications. There are definitely medications that reduce cravings so that if you give them to 100 people, then you can, you can demonstrate a statistically significant reduction um, of the, the people who took the medication compared to the people who didn't. Is that strong enough to overcome the non-conscious problem solver? In the short run, maybe, but not in the long run. And, and that's why I tend to want to put more emphasis on the psychosocial approaches to addiction than the medication, because I've seen too many times when people rely on the medication and they kind of believe, especially in our culture, that the medication is going to do the hard work. And so they slack off and they don't do that hard work going to a meeting when you don't feel like it, for example, and pretty soon then they relapse. And so I think those are sometimes useful adjuncts, but most of the time the message to the mind that somebody else is going to do the hard work is too powerful and they don't really uh, help very much. That's my personal uh, view of it. 
And the medications aren't going to establish meaningful human connections. They sure don't. And so they don't make use of that social uh, drive that we all have. The thing that makes me begin to feel a little bit confident about my recovering uh, people is when the life that they have in recovery is clearly better, is obviously and grossly better than the life they had in their addiction. And when, when the positive aspects of life start to shine, then I think the prognosis begins to look fairly good for long-term, uh, long-term recovery. But it is, it is really, uh, you know, once the brain knows that chemicals or whatever it is make you feel good, it's very easy to get back into those patterns. And they say, you know, that a cucumber can be made into a pickle, but you can never make a pickle into a cucumber. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and now in terms of therapy, sometimes addictions seem to grow a lot out of some psychological issues, some, some deprivation or some emotional problem, and that seems very important. There are other times, especially with alcoholism, where I think it's pretty much purely genetic, and the, the psychology is really pretty normal behind that, and the person in recovery, just as long as they can hang on to their recovery, they're going to function okay. So, once the addiction is under control, then you begin to see whatever personality or emotional issues might have been there prior to really developing the, the addiction. And people who are in recovery and attending a 12-step program can be excellent uh, clients in therapy. I think of AA as sort of like a Swiss army knife. It does a little bit of good for lots and lots of things. It's really specialized in, in addiction, but it helps with emotional things too. But does it cure? Does it really do the same job as psychotherapy for a significant emotional unfinished business or issue? No, it doesn't. And so we need to be a little careful about assuming that everybody with an addiction needs therapy. And we especially need to be careful about doing therapy with somebody who has an ongoing addiction because therapy depends on creating a certain amount of uncomfortable emotion because that's how we resolve it. And if every time the person encounters an uncomfortable emotion, they get high, then no therapy is going to work. So the addiction needs to be under control before we're going to do any, any serious psychotherapeutic work. But often there is work to do, and as people in recovery make, make wonderful uh, therapy clients. So if we could then, just kind of um, in, in terms of providing the therapy for the person with addiction, motivational interviewing. Can we go into that a little bit? Uh, sure, yes. So the main principle is that we're not going to try to tell this person what to do or to convince them or talk them into anything or pressure them in any way, because as soon as we do that, we're going to run into massive resistance and we won't get anywhere. And so there are several principles that are in the book. Uh, one is, so avoid all confrontation or argument. And, and they, they say, roll with the resistance. I say this also to family members that absolutely do not argue. Don't argue about who's right and who's wrong. If you get into one of those things, just say, look, that's my position, and I'm not going to argue for it and disengage from the, from the encounter. The second principle is to be completely and overtly respectful that the other person has their own free will. You're going to make your own choices 
I'm not going to try to tell you what to do. Uh, this is your life, and you make your choices. You also are going to be responsible for the consequences of the choices you make. Right. Uh, the third one is is to use Socratic questioning. So we raise questions. Hmm. So let's see. The day after you feel really horrible and you go through a lot of hell and you're completely unproductive at work. But on the other hand, the night before you had a great time. That's really interesting. And I wonder which which one is more important to you. That kind of questioning then helps to kind of keep the person from skittering away into some rationalization or, or some kind of thinking that's dominated by the non-conscious problem solver, and it keeps them focused on the real questions. And it helps them uh, identify their personal ambivalent feelings. Right. Ambivalent meaning that I feel half of me feels this and the other half feels that. And where are we going to wind up? So where we get down to is we want to help this person face the pros and cons of their behavior. So let's see, you really enjoy the good times, but you really don't like losing jobs. So, hmm. And remember those questions from earlier, those, can you do it by yourself? Can you really handle this all by yourself? Let's take a look at the evidence that you've generated. Can you manage controlled use. Let's see how many times you've tried that and how many times you've succeeded with it. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we're directive using motivational interviewing, but directive in the sense of keeping the discussion focused on the key issues so as to try to resolve or help our, our person face their mixed feelings and come to some resolution. And, and finally, what we've done in the process is by avoiding argument and confrontation, we've preserved a positive relationship and a sense of partnership and collaboration. And there, uh, again, it's, it's somewhat conditional. The person can always walk away. And, and so we're using that need for connection. And we've managed to keep from getting into an antagonistic relationship with somebody where that would be pretty easy to do. All right. So we've spoken a lot about alcohol, but Opiate addiction is something that we run into frequently, and that seems to be particularly tricky. Can you tell us why? Yes, because uh, opiates are sort of, they sort of do an end run around the, the good things that we've been talking about, because, because opiates chemically mimic the good feeling from social connection. And people who are addicted to opiates kind of lose their need for companionship and relationship. They kind of become an island unto themselves. And so if the, the negative side of it is that you lose your sense of connection and relationship, the opiate takes care of that. So it doesn't have that same impact. And I think that helps to understand how, uh, how opiates are so incredibly powerful and how they, they have an advantage um, and, and how the addiction is more difficult to treat than alcohol, let's say, or, or sedative addiction, just because our most important tool, that sense of connection anxiety, is not as effective there. Uh, so what can we do? Well, we use all the same tools, but recognize that, that they don't have as much power as they normally do. Uh, and 
you know, that's why this addiction that we have currently, this this opiate epidemic in our country uh, is, is so terribly dangerous. I guess a, a related note about that is that in our society, in our society, we've typically, since we put such an emphasis on business and on efficiency, we've grown more and more efficient and effective at delivering powerfully addictive pleasures. If you think about it, cocaine wasn't a problem for the Indians who used to chew leaves and get a low-level dose of stimulation. But when we learned how to make that into high-quality cocaine, then it became a, a problem. Alcohol existed for thousands of years before anybody figured out how to distill it and make it into high-potency addictive substance. And so then you think about pornography that's become incredibly available and where there's nothing left uh, hidden. And that's very powerful as well. Video games provide a substitute for exciting life that, again, highly concentrated. Fast food outlets provide for low-cost high-calorie, high-energy foods that satisfy all of those biological cravings. And so we have a great number of, of ways now of providing intense positive experiences that have a stronger tendency than, than ever before to hijack free will and to lead to uh, addictive behaviors. So we're in a lot of trouble here as a, as a society, and I don't know how we're going to confront that, but that's a fact, I think, that the high quality of our ability to gratify those biological needs has a downside to it in every direction. Mm-hmm. All right. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about some positive prognostic signs. Well... One positive prognostic sign is that therapists are going to be are going to be pretty important for the many years to come. So, so it's good for uh, for psychotherapists, especially if they understand how addictions work. Positive prognostic signs is really what I said before: is when the person's recovery is so valuable and so so delightful for them that they have a better way of living and look back to their addictive days and say, oh my gosh, I never want to go back to that again. That was awful. Then I'm beginning to feel a little teeny bit of confidence that maybe we're on the, we're on the right track. Good. Okay. Well, Dr. Smith, this concludes today's podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, so so the thing I would like uh, listeners to take away is that when you work with people with addictions, you have a pure chance to to listen to, to watch, to learn about that non-conscious problem solver and how powerful it is and how it operates to pop uh, thoughts and impulses and feelings into the mind in such a way as to influence behavior. And and that's really the purpose of the non-conscious mind. It's there to try to adapt and to try to get us to do the things that it thinks we need to do for the preservation of the species, whether they're 
actually good for us or not. Okay. What do you want me to say to that? <laughs> it seems so, so, so with that, let's wind up for today. Um, and it's been a pleasure. And bye for now. We'll see you next time. Okay. Goodbye, everybody.